Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Thank you. Well, let's give it up again for the worship team. Let's thank them for Pastor Barry, Pastor Josh leading us today. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chandler. Uh, my wife, Kelly, and I, we've been going to Banner Church for a while now. We love being here, and we po- call this place our church home. And every once in a while, I get to preach, and I'm just excited uh, to share the word of the Lord with you today. Um, there's nothing quite like it, is there? I mean, we could we could gather uh, around some, get some chairs, get a table, open up Chronicles of Narnia together, read that together. That'd be fun, but there's nothing quite like gathering and reading real stories of real miracles, real stories that demonstrate the, the, chron- uh, the chronicles, the power of God. <laughs> also, the God chronicles in my brain. There's nothing quite like reading the Word of God because it's living, it's active, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it leads us, it guides us, and it shows us how to live, what to believe, and who to live for and how we get connected to him through Jesus Christ. And so I want to pray, then we're going to read uh, some scripture and and dig in to a message on John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. That is what Jesus says about himself. But let's pray together as we open up the word of God. Thank you, Father, for this gorgeous day. Thank you for the weather and the fact that we get to live in this state that is such a gift to us and these people who are a gift to me and to one another and to this church. Thank you for what you're doing here at Banner. Father, I pray that your word would just find root, take root in good soil today, that the seed of your word would be planted and would grow and bear fruit so that people can walk away from church today feeling empowered, equipped, informed, but also transformed to obey out of the, not the goodness of their own heart, but out of the goodness which God puts in their hearts as he changes them, makes them more like Christ as they hear his word today. And so God, show your power through your word. Show your love through your word and glorify your son Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, well, as I said, we're going through our I Am series. We're covering the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We've talked about I Am the Shepherd. Uh, I think we've had a couple other weeks, but t- this week we are on I Am the Resurrection and the Life. And we're going to be parking in, in John 11 today as we read uh, qu- quite a few verses from Scripture today. But I believe that this story is one of the most compelling, life-changing stories in all of Scripture. And part of that, part of that power comes from where it's placed in the canon of Scripture. When I say canon of Scripture, I don't mean like the gunfire canon, although it does have that power. What I mean is the canon of Scripture, the measuring rod of Scripture, that's what a canon is. That word canon means a measuring rod back in the day. And so when I say the canon, I say Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through the New Testament, Revelation, right? That is the canon of Scripture. And John is right in the middle, and it's at a key point in the revelation of God to his people. 
Because all throughout the Old Testament, God has been giving the people of Israel laws to live by, promises to trust in, grace to fall back on, and Israel would learn, Israel would grow, but then Israel would sin and Israel would fail. We have to fall back on that grace. And it was this cycle of promise, fulfillment, failure, falling back on grace. And that happened for thousands of years until the turn of our calendars from B.C. to A.D. Jesus arrives on the scene, and he represents God's final word to his people, to the people of Israel, to the whole world, actually, and to you and to me. And as John is writing his gospel, he's doing something a bit different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They're all telling the same story, but from their own perspectives, right? And John is doing something theological. And by theological, I don't mean code for boring. By theological, I mean profound statements about God that show us who he is as both, about Jesus, as God and man. John wants to show that Jesus has the authority over your life, and in fact, the authority over all of life, even authority over death. And he wants to show in this passage about Lazarus that authority comes from his godhood. But at the same time, he wants to show that Jesus is man and that he suffers with us in the trials of our life, in the suffering that we experience, and he even tasted death for our sakes. So John's got an agenda in mind. John wants to show you something, that God's love and God's authority as God and as man, those two things, they, they don't clash against one another. But Jesus is able to empathize us, empathize with us, and triumph over death at the same time. Though beset with human weakness, he's also God with authority. And he's going to conquer over death. And so we're going to dig in to the Word of God this morning. And we're going to see what does Jesus have to say about death and how he conquers it. Insofar as this passage demonstrates that, that Jesus has power over death, I would say there's only one more passage in Scripture that can beat it out, as far as that goes. And it's the story of Jesus actually rising from the dead himself. If Lazarus being raised from the dead, which I'm going to read for you in a moment, if that is the second best picture of Jesus' power, then only his own power over death in rising from the grave on the third day beats it out. So why park here? Why spend time in this passage instead of going straight to Easter Sunday? Well, because Easter Sunday is coming, right? We've got a few weeks left. But I also think if Easter Sunday represents like the lightning strike of God's revelation, the most powerful, bright, almost miraculous, in the sense of lightning being almost miraculous, uh, performance of God's power, if that's what Easter Sunday is, then I think the raising of Lazarus is like the thunderclap that comes before the lightning. And what does the thunderclap do? When we hear it, when the thunder rolls, it causes us to look up, draw attention to God, and to begin to pay attention to what he's about to say. If the thunder in the heavens, the literal thunder in the heavens, causes us to stop in our tracks, slow down and ask, who is God? And what is he speaking to us? And I think that's what Lazarus, in his rising from the dead, 
through Jesus' power. That's what it communicates to us today. So Easter is coming. It's going to be an even greater demonstration of God's power. But today, God's going to show his power through Lazarus in his word. But we can only believe that if we believe a few things about Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, who are the key players in today's story. So I want to open up the scriptures. I want to read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I'm going to uh, skip just a few verses so we can um, get through the passage a bit quicker, but trust me, the story holds together. Let's read it. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Going down to verse 17. Now, when Jesus came two days later, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. There's a lot going on in this passage. And we can't cover it all, and we can't cover all the implications of it. What I want to do really quickly is just summarize some of the key moments so they're fresh in our mind. It begins, Lazarus is ill and on the verge of death. And Jesus hears of this news. And Jesus, on hearing this news, does the unexpected. He delays. He delays, and he gives a reason for it. He says early on in this passage, it's for the glory of God. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus delays. And he arrives, but late, to Lazarus's tomb. Lazarus has already died, and two women who are key to this story, precious to Jesus, whom he loves deeply, as well as Lazarus, two women have different responses to Jesus's delay and late arrival. Jesus arrives late, and Martha comes out of her house and greets him. She talks honestly with him. She complains respectfully, but forthrightly, and then has a dialogue with Jesus. And then she receives from him a promise that Lazarus will rise again. And Martha, encouraged by this, goes back to Mary, who's remained privately in her sitting place in the house, and tells her, the teacher's calling for you. And then Mary comes out. She speaks to Jesus, but she speaks with Jesus differently than Martha. She speaks with Jesus timidly. Jesus sees Martha and her response. Jesus sees Mary and her response. Jesus sees all the people looking on, and he weeps with compassion for all of them and in indignation at the suffering of death. And finally, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Earlier I mentioned Chronicles of Narnia and how that it might be fun to gather around and, and read that book together. Um, but there's a difference here with the Bible because if Lazarus is just a cool character or this story is just a really awesome climax to a yarn that the Apostle John is, is spinning for us, that might make a good movie. It might make a really exciting serial novel, but it doesn't make for the foundation of our faith. If Lazarus is just a metaphor for our spiritual life when we're feeling sad and we want to be resurrected to a good mood again, or if Lazarus and the principles operative in this story just give us a few life hacks that we could gain from maybe uh, a story from a children's book. That might be nice, and that might be beneficial, but it's not worth dying for, like martyrs have died for for thousands of year for the, years for the Christian faith. 
It's not worth living for and choosing a church for and getting invested in community for and sacrificing for. So if we're going to take this story of Lazarus seriously, if we're going to believe that we no longer remain in our sins because we have died to our sins and been raised to new life, we better believe that Lazarus was a real person who really died, whom Jesus really loved, and whom Jesus really raised from the dead. Because only then is Jesus' power and authority real for us. And so we have to read all this story very seriously. And I don't mean seriously like you take seriously a Shakespearean novel because it's profound. I mean seriously because it's a matter of greatest consequence for you. It is a difference between joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow in the midst of suffering. It is a difference between breakthrough and sanctification and becoming more like Christ and remaining in the same place that you have been for the last 10 years in your spiritual life. That is the, those are the stakes that are set by the reality, the historical reality of this passage. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, everyone is affected, not just Lazarus. If Jesus cannot raise the dead, then there is no hope beyond the grave. If he can, we have hope for the future and hope for now. And every other element of the story takes on a greater meaning. So, Lazarus, a real man whose resurrection has real lessons to teach us. Contained in this narrative is hope and dismay, compassion and sadness, death and life, and there are enough events and emotions in the story to be here all day. But this morning, what I want to talk about is one glorious quality of Jesus's and one application that we can draw from that. And we're going to get to that at the end. But first, we have to unpack the events of this story because what we see here is uh, a real-life drama that has applications for us depending on the sort of person that we might be, whether we identify more with Lazarus and his state, Martha and her state, or Mary and her state. Because all these characters have different histories, different backgrounds, different personalities that they're bringing to the story and that they're bringing in real life to Jesus. You bring in your own life a history of interactions with the Lord in prayer, in Bible reading, in conversations with other Christians who bear and other people who bear the image of God. All these things affect the way that we're going to respond to a delay like Jesus's. It's easy to have good theology or pious thoughts or a worshipful heart toward God before the delay. When you've sent the message, you've sent the messenger off to Jesus and you're waiting for the response, you might remember all the things that you've benefited from him. But forget that Jesus is on mission and his mission is ultimately the glory of God and that might upset our expectations at times. So in order to understand the expectations that Mary, Martha, those two have and what we can get out of that Let's, let's look at how they respond. What's the main thing that unites these characters, first of all? They're all loved deeply by the Lord. 
despite all that happens to them and the different ways they respond, they all are loved, and John wants to call that out actively, clearly, almost clumsily. It seems like, John, you're kind of calling attention to something that we took for granted, that Jesus loves these people, but he's intent on doing it, and I think it's for a reason. He says in verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, Lazarus. And then John goes out of his way again to say in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he does that because he knows that between verses 5 and 6, there's a key word that's going to transform our expectations and upend them and cause us to respond. And it's a very small word in English, only two letters, and it's the word so in verse 6. 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't compute from a human understanding. Jesus hears that there's sorrow and suffering and the threat of the shadow of death, and he stays. And we might think the preface to that would be Jesus wasn't a good guy or Jesus didn't care. But the exact opposite is what we confess and we believe in what John writes, which is that Jesus loved, and for that reason, he stays and he delays. And he telegraphs to us clearly at least a piece of why. Verse 4, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So whatever happens in, the, happens in this story, two things are at the forefront of Jesus' mind, at the forefront of God's mind, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. God is acting for two things, to love perfectly and to glorify himself, and especially his Son, perfectly. God's love and God's glory go hand in hand two sides of the same coin. God's love is not under review. John assumes it, and he wants to make sure that we interpret everything in light of that love. And these verses are absolutely cru crucial, not only to the significance of this story, but to the significance of our story as we go through suffering. When we send prayers and get no answer back quickly, when we send out a sort of SOS to God, and there's no sign of any help coming. John wants us to know Jesus' choice not to drop everything immediately and run to Lazarus' aid in his time of desperate need, that's a great test of our faith. But it is no challenge to Jesus' love. John expects us to stare straight in the face to seemingly incompatible truths. Jesus loves Lazarus and Jesus delays in coming to him. Put it in our own terms, Jesus cares about our problems, and yet he is sometimes really slow, or seemingly slow, to solving them. So, the word so means therefore. It should shock us, and we have to start asking ourselves, are we capable of handling that so? That tiny 
transitional word has so much human significance for us. Because there are times of suffering that we can easily put in the box of, I understand that. That makes sense. I have a category for that level of suffering. And then there is another box, another category of suffering that we say to Jesus, perhaps, in our heart of hearts, that is a bridge too far. That is too long to wait, God. The delay is too devastating. We might use two different images to kind of place ourselves in one box or the other? Are we in a place in our lives right now where we can handle our suffering? Are we in this extra difficult place where we need a special word from Jesus? We need a resurrection. We need a rebuilding of what is broken. And the image I, I want to use to help us conceive of where Mary and Martha might be is one of being stranded on an island. But there are two versions to the story. There's the regular suffering version, right? Being stranded on an island, that's bad news already. We can all admit that is suffering, not to be discounted. And you can imagine being stranded on an island and you send out an SOS. You pull down the palm fronds. You get enough. It's a big enough island, right? You can make an S. You can make an O. You can make another S. You rub some sticks together, catches flame, and you set it afire. And the smoke rises, and the flames are red on the beige of the sand, and one happy day, a plane flies by. And you can tell that plane's close enough. That plane can see. I hope I receive a sign that help is coming. And the very next day, a second plane. And it's carrying behind it, it's trailing behind it, a banner. You know when you go to the beach sometimes, and you see those planes that are carrying messages like, will you marry me, or whatever, right? Okay, this one, this one does not say, will you marry me, which is certainly not what you want to hear at that moment. And it says, help is on the way. Do you think on day two of this story, now that you've, you've sent out the SOS, help is on the way, will you have more motivation, more strength, maybe to ration your food a bit more strictly? It's like, okay, there's a chance. Okay, this little hut that I didn't give much attention to, it might be the thing that keeps me alive for the next week while the ship comes. I'm paying attention to that hut. And suddenly you have motivation, vigor, life to persevere because you received the message that help is on the way. Okay, that's how suffering... I'm going to move my friendly uh, music stand. Thank you. Thank you. That first desert island experience is like most experiences of suffering for us. We know they're hard. We might complain about them a bit, but we have assumed that our life is going to carry that level of suffering. But then there's an extra level of suffering that Mary and Martha didn't get at first and that we don't get at first. And it's when that sign for help is not coming, when the delay is there, when Jesus doesn't show up on time. Or, to go back to our island image, let's say I send out that SOS, a plane comes on that first day, and I'm very excited to see the sign of a second plane coming, help is on the way. But on day two, it's a cloudy day. And it stays cloudy on day three, day four, day five. And as I look up searching for a sign from heaven that help is on the way, all I see is the blanket of gray covering everything. 
and I don't know if that first plane came by, if it saw me. I don't know if a boat has been commissioned to come to my little island in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle to save me. I can hope, but I have no evidence that help is on the way. And that is the place that Mary and Martha are in. Their suffering has been taken to a deeper place so that their faith might be more deeply tested. So that the glory of God can be more greatly attested. God delays to challenge us in our suffering so that the glory that we receive from our suffering increases in size and in weight. If this is you, if Mary and Martha's situation feels like yours, if your normal season of suffering has been prolonged and amplified and there has been added insult to injury and you believe, though you might not want to say it, and you shrink at the thought, at times you believe that God has abandoned you, though he has not, and you wonder, is my message lost? Is my prayer going to go unanswered forever? If that's you, you're in the position that Mary and Martha were in. And the story has something special to teach you, especially. Jesus, what role does he play in his relationship to Mary and in his relationship to Martha? Does he treat them the same? Though he loves them the same, the question is, does that love express itself in the same kind of response to Mary and Martha? Because Mary and Martha do not respond to Lazarus' death in the same way. These are all people who know Jesus intimately and will have a certain perspective on the story that's unfolding. As I mentioned earlier, we all come to Jesus with experiences. I almost said baggage, but sometimes it's positive stuff, right? We, we build up a, a relationship with God that's full of joy and victories and triumphs and answers to prayer and expectations that are appropriately set, appropriately high, appropriately God-honoring. We're full of faith. We're full of zeal and love and joy. But we also have a, another page or a, another side of our history with God where we have doubts that creep in. We have wrong thoughts about God that we can't banish from our mind. And so all the time, just like Mary, just like Martha, just like Lazarus, you and I are accumulating almost like underground, subterranean magma is forming. And as that magma forms, it does so invisibly. Our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our beliefs about God, they're so often invisible to us, but they're constantly forming below the surface. All it takes is some heat, some pressure, some stirring in the earth, something that shakes the foundation of the ground beneath our feet. That will cause the magma to come up out of the ground. Or perhaps it's more like a geyser. Maybe it's rivers of living water. Maybe that's what comes out. But it's one or the other, isn't it? The stirring in our lives, the suffering in our lives, shakes our foundations such that we see the fruit of our 
history with Jesus to our to to that point. And Martha shows what's in her heart. Mary shows what's in her heart. And we're going to come into the story probably with some own, own some of our own expectations about each one of those women because we know Mary and Martha, don't we? We know them from the book of Luke. Mary, the woman who who wipes Jesus' feet with ointment in worship, with her hair, with, with the, one of the most beautiful parts of her. She, she says, this is yours. I, I wash your feet in, in submission and in love and in worship. She is a sensitive worshiper. She's a prayer warrior. She is on fire for the Lord. We might even, to bring it back to our own present-day charismatic Scenario. We might think of Mary as a sort of person who's at every prayer meeting. Mary is the sort of person who's, who's not just at every prayer meeting. She's leading every prayer meeting. And at the end of the prayer meeting, she's staying late. And she's got the anointing oil. And she's going to make sure every spot on the threshold of this doorway is hit with that anointing oil, right? And she's going to drive out those demons. She's going to go inside the bedroom. She's going to hit the bedpost with the anointing oil. And she's the one praying over you. She's the one who's believing for your healing and is calling you up at, you know, 10 a.m. on a Saturday just to see how you're doing. And, and she is so devoted to God. She's so devoted to you in love. We love Mary. But we also know that Mary might be the sort of woman who isn't often at, like, youth group game nights helping out, setting up tables. She might not stay late after small group on Wednesday because, you know, she's got a 5 a.m. prayer meeting in the morning. She can't miss her alarm clock, right? She can't sleep through that. So Mary, although she's really strong in this sincere, almost passionate devotion and worship with the Lord, Martha has a different strength. She's the woman who is late on Wednesday nights, staying there, tearing down the chairs, tearing down the tables, making sure the trash is put away, connecting with everybody, making sure everyone's taken care of. And we see that distinction, we see that difference in Luke 10, and in that story, Mary is the, is the, the model. To use the word loosely, she's the hero of the story, right? Mary is the one who's commended for her attitude of worship to the Lord, and Martha is told, man, you got to learn a thing from Mary here. Mary has the one thing that's going to be not taken from her, the good portion. But in this story, the script is flipped. And where Mary was strong and her, her almost, her willingness to rest and her willingness to stay still and meditate with the Lord and to be very sensitive to the heart of Christ, that un ends up being a hindrance to her faith in the season of trial. In the season of worship and of devotion, that was a strength. In the season of trial, it is a hindrance. And Martha, the one whose worship maybe was stunted, whose connection to God in those moments was blocked off relative to Mary's. In this season of trial and of suffering, that resilience, that tenacity, that activity, that zeal, that work, almost like workman's mentality, it is exactly what sustains her and grants her the sort of context, promise, and hope from Jesus that Mary does not receive. 
And I want to show that. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to show that in the way that Mary and Martha speak with Jesus. So we go back into the word. It says in verse 17, Jesus shows up. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, tune in here. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Not when she saw, not when he was really close by, just around the corner. When she heard news that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But, again, the word but, small word, Lots of meaning. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is exactly what Mary will say to Jesus later. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary and Martha at step one or stage one in their conversation with Jesus say the exact same thing. They're honest before the Lord and Jesus does not condemn them for it. He's, he knows they're right. He's waiting for them to say this. If you were here, my brother would not have died, but Martha does not stop there. Again, another short word, but even now I know Jesus, that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha presses in Martha presents her complaint before the Lord, but she doesn't wait for Jesus to respond. She immediately adds an additional statement. But I know even now, even in the delay, even in the seemingly arbitrary, senseless, negligent delay of Jesus's late arrival, even in that, I know that whatever you ask from God, Lord, God will give you. And Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. And Jesus knows what he's doing here by saying that. Your brother will rise again. Immediately in Martha's mind, oh, I'm an educated Jewish person in the first century. We have a doctrine for that. The resurrection of the just. One day, 50 years from now, who knows how long, I'll die and then we'll wait a while longer and then millennia later, me and Lazarus, brother and sister, will both rise again in the resurrection of the just, and, and God will vindicate us. That's a good doctrine, Jesus. You're right. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus has a newsflash for her. He's updated. This is the second edition of Jesus' theology book. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha's natural temper, one commentator says, Martha's natural temper was active and busy. She loved to be here and there and at the end of everything. But now in a day of affliction, this active temper did her a kindness, kept the grief from her heart, and made her go forward 
to meet Christ, and so she received comfort from him the sooner. On the other hand, Mary, her natural temper was contemplative and reserved. This had been formerly an advantage to her when it placed her at Christ's feet to hear his word and enabled there to attend upon him without those distractions with which Martha, Martha was cumbered. But now in the day of affliction, that same temper proved a snare to her, made her less able to grapple with her grief and disposed her to melancholy, depression. See how much it will be our wisdom carefully to watch against the temptations and improve the advantages of our natural temper. Mary's natural temper was an asset to her in seeking God in devotional worship. But her natural temper was a hindrance to her when the suffering of life demanded a active, an active faith. A faith that would go forward rather than sit back. A faith that would seek God in spite of the delay, in spite of the pain, and not count it against God as an insult to her or a negligence against her. Martha was well disposed in her resilience and in her passion and in her tenacity. I would say in prayer, but she got to see Jesus in person. We don't have that, do we? We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within us ought to give us that tenacity in suffering to go to God and meet him in prayer. Meet him in the word. Meet him in a forthright conversation with our brother or sister in Christ as we try to seek the Lord but are struggling to do so. There are active things we can do and that Martha did in order to see not just the resurrection of Lazarus, although she got that, but the glory of God inherent within that. The glory of God that was revealed through the resurrection of Lazarus. And why, why has Jesus earned that? Where can Jesus get off doing that to us? Just because he's God and we owe him our allegiance and we owe him our piety, he's king. We'll bow to him. We ought to bow now. Do we fear the sword? Or is it something more than that? It absolutely is. The shortest verse in our English Bibles, 1135, Jesus wept. As a human being, Jesus shares in the full extent of our suffering and death and then some because although we bear the weight of our own sin, Jesus bears the weight of no sin on his part at all, but all of our sins. And he carried that burden with him to the cross. His body carried the two boards. His spirit carried the sins of the world. And if he can taste death and the sting and the wages of sin for us, then he has earned the right to get off delaying so that his glory can be more greatly shown. Not because, not simply because 
he's all wise, although he is that. Not simply because he is sovereign, although he is that, but because he is love. And John says, Lazarus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha. Remember those verses. They are key to understanding John's view and what should be our view of Jesus as God-man. As a human being, he's the only one who can suffer death so that he may experience resurrection because he overcame the grave. As God, Jesus orders death around, not the other way around. Jesus' divinity makes death a non-entity. If Jesus as man, if Jesus in his humanity made him able to face death and undergo burial so that he could then undergo a resurrection, and on that basis he can say, I am the resurrection, then Jesus' divinity, alongside his humanity, in his divinity he says, death is nothing to me. As man, he experiences it, and he conquers it. As God, he is far above it. So much so that he can say in verse 26 of chapter 11, who, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right after he says, though he die, yet shall he live. What's the point? Death, where is your victory? Where is, where is your sting? It doesn't exist, at least not for us who are in Christ Jesus. So I said earlier, one glorious quality of Jesus is what I want to draw out here, and then one crucial application. Who is Jesus? What do we do about it? And the glorious quality of Jesus is this. When Jesus delays, he suffers more with us so that he may conquer more for us. Jesus suffers with us so that he can conquer death. One who has not met death cannot conquer it. You don't win a battle you don't enter into. Jesus, as man, entered into the battle. He suffers as a man. He conquers as God. In the waiting, in the delay, Jesus still has authority. Nothing can separate us from his power and love. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor a height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection of Lazarus would not have happened without Jesus' delay. Moreover, the resurrection of Jesus would not have happened without his crucifixion, while God the Father looked on as a part of the plan. God is fully committed, even at the cost of his own Son, that we would conquer death, that we would overcome sin, not by our might, but by the power of the cross. 
And Lazarus, like I said earlier, it is the thunderclap before the lightning strike. Easter is coming. But what will we do with Lazarus' story? What will we think about Jesus? And how will we respond to the prospect of death and the reality of suffering in the here and now, especially when the delay is long? What are we going to do about that? Here's the application. The victory of faith is won by continuing to believe in Jesus in spite of suffering in order to see the greater glory of God. Jesus says at the forefront, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through him. I am not suffering so that I can get a pat on the back from Jesus. Jesus has far greater plans for me. It's the glory of God, and I share in that glory because it says if we, the Spirit himself, Romans 8 again, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then what? Who knows? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And there's a proviso. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ben, come on up. Our suffering, not just for Jesus, but our suffering with Jesus is a necessary ingredient to witnessing the glory of God. And Jesus grants Mary and Martha an opportunity to take advantage of the gift, to benefit from the gift of his delay. Because his delay opens up the possibility of Lazarus's death. Apart from the delay, Lazarus gets tuberculosis or whatever he had and gets better. But with the delay, the death takes place and the glory of God shines through all the more. The delay is crucial but we have to respond to it. And I think the first, the first step, the obvious step, is responding in worship. This morning, as I was preparing uh, to, to send this email with the PowerPoint slides uh, off to Jordan in the back, I was, had my email open. And I happened to get this email from an organization, a Christian organization that I, uh, I follow. And something about the, the title of the article stuck out to me, and it seemed relevant to today's topic, which I thought was interesting, seeing as I'm preaching today. And the article was all about how we respond rightly to extended suffering. And he quoted, the author quoted a different author named John Owen. And John Owen hundreds of years ago, gave counsel to those who are spiritually doubting. And it sounds a lot like what Martha did. John Owen said this, Be not heartless or slothful. Get up and be doing. Attend with diligence to the word of grace. Be fervent in prayer, assiduous in the use of all ordinances of the church. Translation, 
be baptized, take the Lord's Supper, pray, go to the, the sermons. In one or other of those things, at one time or another, you will meet with God whom your soul loves. And God through him, that is Jesus Christ, will speak peace to you. Don't stay like Mary privately in your sitting place at home. Up and be doing. Be like Martha. Go out and meet Christ in your suffering. Contend, wrestle with God like Jacob. You're allowed to wrestle with God. You're going to lose, but you're going to get a blessing out of it. You're going to walk away with a limp, but you're going to be so glad you did. This article went on to give some really practical tips. You're like, man, is the point of this sermon to go to church and be a good boy, be a good girl, and, you know, like, you know, buck up, you know, pull up your bootstraps, and just listen to what the pastor has to say. Well, yes, but it's really much more than that. It's not about earning it. It's not about checking all the boxes. Our spiritual disciplines in suffering are the pathway to deliverance. I'm going to quote this article again. He says, talking about some practical tips for winning the battle in your suffering, knowing that God uses our diligence as a means of deliverance, we might ask questions like these of ourselves when darkness persists in our life. Am I actively killing every known sin, including those that seem unrelated to my main struggle, and by comparison small? Have my prayers for deliverance looked anything like that holy impudence that knocks again and again at Jesus's door? Do I meditate upon God's word day and night? And in particular, am I intimately acquainted with passages that address my struggle? On Sundays, do I listen to sermons and take the Lord's Supper expectantly, looking to my Lord as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master? Have I kept pursuing Christian community, surrounding myself with spirit-filled people rather than shrinking away into the shadows? Have I sought specific counsel from wise and trusted saints inviting them to take a flashlight into the cellar of my soul. Will you stand with me? Now is the time to respond, and it's very simple. The altar is open. We're going to sing a song called Build My Life. And I encourage you, re-edit if you need to, the word build to rebuild. Because suffering shakes our foundations. And as we sing, build my life, we are calling on God to lay down a cement, a firm foundation once more. To show us again that he is God who has authority over suffering. He is God who has authority over death. And if we do not respond in worship, we are missing out on the means of our deliverance. So the time is now. Come, receive prayer, worship before the Lord. Let's sing this song together. 
Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.